a couple of stories to begin with, if I can. Um, <clears throat> there is a well-worn story uh, that many of you, I'm sure, have heard of a cleaner. She was a loyal worker. Her boss was a man named Walt Disney. For many decades, she worked for him. She died in poverty, though, absolutely unknown to the world. But her story is well told simply because she was the woman that never opened the brown envelopes. Every year inside her Christmas card, the, the billionaire Walt Disney would uh, write a little note in the card, but also place a little brown envelope inside that Christmas card. She never opened them. She just kept the envelopes in a drawer. When she died, her children found those envelopes and opened them and found that she'd been given by Walt Disney every single Christmas for decades shares in the company. She never knew it. At her death, unbeknownst to her, she was a millionaire. Stories of unclaimed prizes have been in the news recently, haven't they? People are desperate to get hold of uh, certain amounts of money. Uh, stories of newfound treasures are interesting. One of our favourite films in our family is National Treasure, one and two. Great films, love them. Finding treasure, unclaimed prizes, even children's stories, they're great, aren't they? Because that's a topic that we love. I heard a story this week of a lady called Bertha Adams, very similar. She died actually of malnutrition. That was what was written on a death certificate. Her house was described by a, the inspector, the government inspector who cleared it out, as a pigsty. And she regularly begged for food from her neighbours and from clothes for, from the neighbours. Yet, in the clear-up of her house, they found two keys. And after a while, they found that those keys were keys to safety deposit boxes in local banks in America where she lived. And in one of those boxes, they found certificate, bond certificates worth over $1 million, alongside $200,000 of cash. In the other box, they found just $500,000 in cash. A millionaire, twice over, that starved to death. And we see in both of those stories tragedy, don't we? Tragic in, in their own ways. Both act, though, I guess, as explosive parables to expose the grip that materialism, that wealth, that greed can have on lives, on us as well. Because our society, I guess, is obsessed with the notion that happiness and meaning and security is ultimately found in what you have, the possessions that you own, the money in your bank account or your safety deposit box. Rarely would anyone express that in those kind of terms, though, would they? That would be far too crass. That would be far too ostentatious. And we're not those kind of people, are we? No. But the reality is that the ultimate in so many lives is something that they possess or long to possess. Now, let's be clear, let's be realistic about this as well. It isn't the fact that possessions and wealth cannot bring happiness. That's not Jesus' point here. They can, of course, momentarily, but not ultimately. And we know that. Deep down, we know that. But look around. People are never fully satisfied, are they? They find themselves always wanting more. Always, kind of, they, they get to a point where they've dreamt for so long. They get that thing. They go to that place. They find that promotion. They get whatever it is they've been dreaming about. 
and it never quite fully meets with their expectations, does it? You buy the car, the holiday home, more realistically for most of us it's just a nice holiday, and it's great, but it's not quite as great as you once imagined, is it? As Christians, and many of us live trying to balance between uh, trying to find our ultimate meaning and security and treasure in Christ, but also at the same time, again and again, looking the other way, tipping the other way, thinking, oh, well, if I only have that, my life would just be a bit better, just a tiny bit better, not too much, no, but a bit. Into every culture, and our culture particularly, Jesus speaks these extraordinary words, and they're difficult, aren't they? Words we've just heard read. And I, I just have a look down in the passage and you'll see, Jesus is using, as he does again and again in his teaching, three little pictures, three metaphors, if you like, that don't directly sort of speak into how you and I get our wallets out and spend our money, or the money that we have. Rather, what do they do? They actually go a little bit deeper, don't they? They go to your heart, they go to your mind, and they show us why. The bigger question, isn't it? Why we spend what we spend, and so much more as well. And the first metaphor, let's have a look at that. The first little picture, verse 19 through to verse 21, is a metaphor, a picture of treasure. Let's have a look at that quickly if we can. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's two treasures pointed out here, aren't there? And Jesus begins, if you spotted it, with a negative. And it's a command as well. That's an important thing that we'll need to look at. Do not store up for yourself, treasures on earth. And that's followed with a positive, isn't it? Again, it's a command, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He finishes with this little pithy kind of wisdom bit of teaching. Have a look at that at the end. He says, store, um, sorry, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now let's look at this together very quickly. Because there's, interestingly, there's nothing like this in the literature of the time. This would have been uniquely shocking then as it is today because we love talking about our money and our possessions and what, what we can get. That's the wisdom around. It would have been unique then as it is now. And what Jesus is speaking of here when he speaks of treasure is just like you imagine. There's nothing kind of you know, complicated about this. Fine clothes, precious metals, gold, silver, jewels. That's what Jesus is speaking about. And the picture we see is uh, that Jesus warns of is that thieves break in and steal that kind of treasure if you accumulate it, if you grieve for it. Literally saying, they dig through the walls. Now, that's because that's what used to happen. There were no banks and therefore people used to keep their money either kind of in, in corners or in places behind things or under floorboards if they could. Uh, but the easiest way to get into a house then was to break through the wall. Literally dig through it. Sounds crazy, but when I visited the Ukraine back as a student, went on a little kind of a mission out there with, a, with my church, I got to stay with this wealthy businessman. 
extraordinary man. He owned a vodka company. But he'd become a Christian and he, he kind of kept on with that. But he didn't trust the banks and he was very wise not to trust the banks. So it's flat as I went there the first time. Uh, I met these two armed guards there with massive rifles. And I was like, that's a nice welcome, isn't it? To a, to a kind of flat in a kind of little city uh, in, uh, in Ukraine. Extraordinary though, he showed me on the last night I was there after two weeks that I'd been sleeping on trunks underneath the bed which had just very large American dollar notes. There must have been hundreds of thousands of dollars that I'd been lying on every night unlocked. I'd have to get through two armed guards, but you know, I, it, you know, it was a pretty amazing thing. Now, that's a slight digression. But the point here that Jesus is making is simple. He's saying that if money is your treasure, be warm, because having it's a precarious thing. It's a very precarious thing. And he gives reasons, whether it's the natural laws of nature with moth and vermin that will destroy it, it will all go. Whatever you accumulate now, it's just going to get, it's going to go. If you want a real picture of what your possessions will look like, go to a junkyard. Go to a scrap heap. Because that's where it's all going to end up. Uh, and also he then says, or it's just going to be the fallenness of man. Thieves will break in, they'll dig through, they'll take it. That's what it's like, isn't it? You just try and leave your car unlocked or your house unlocked for the day. See what happens. Wherever your treasure is, storing up on earth is futile. It's a futile pursuit, Jesus warns. And hence Jesus' command, he just says, do not, do not. And now please, please let's be clear here. Let's not all go and sell everything that we have, whether it's a, you know, a flat, a house, or a car, or anything that we enjoy. No, we, we, that's not Jesus' point here. We're not all to go away and say, right, I've got to live in relative poverty. No. Nowhere in the Bible, is, we would call that asceticism. That is, we think that becoming more holy requires us to live in absolute poverty. No. That is not what Jesus teaches. Neither is he Jesus condemning wealth. So if you have been privileged, blessed by God with relative wealth, please don't hear any condemnation from Jesus here simply because you have earned wealth or inherited wealth. Also, please don't hear that it isn't right to have savings. If you think, oh no, you know, Proverbs 6 is very, very clear. Verse 7 and 8. It is a wise, it is a prudent thing to do, to have money stored away for a rainy day. I wish more would do so. We must not despise the good things in life that we were able to enjoy. So if you go on a holiday, don't beat yourself up halfway through the holiday. Oh, I'm having a terrible time here because I'm enjoying... No. If you have nice clothes, a car, lovely food, these things are good. Kindness is from God and his creation. 1 Timothy 4 verse 4 says, They're not to be rejected but to be appreciated with thanksgiving to God. That's the critical point. And if someone gives you something lovely, a treat, you know, something that you think, I could never have afforded that, or, you know, a parent sort of wants to spoil you and take you out somewhere, you don't just sit there and go, oh, oh, how awful. Enjoy it. And be thankful to God for it. If you go on holiday, and it's beautiful, appreciate it and give thanks to God for his creation, and the chance for you to rest 
What Jesus is commanding here is not against money, nor wealth. He is speaking against the selfish accumulation of wealth, the greed that can so easily consume us, especially us. Did anyone see that recent panorama documentary on President Putin in, in, in Russia? It's an extraordinary program. It's on iPlayer, and it's brilliant. It was a very interesting program. He receives for his job a salary of roughly 100,000 US dollars. Now, relatively, in, in Russia, that would be an extraordinary wage, wouldn't it? A good wage. It's much re relatively higher than, of course, that David Cameron earns. But many people have estimated now that his worth is between 40 and 60 billion US dollars, making him by far the wealthiest man in Europe and in the top five in the world. The man is greedy, dreadfully greedy, it seems. But I wanted to ask myself as I watched it, I said, is that a difference of circumstance and opportunity or a difference of heart and mind? Paul says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Don't listen to President Putin, I would listen to Paul through God's word. This is just one of the many warnings in the New Testament against the dangers of greed that Jesus is speaking here. We're told to be on guard against it elsewhere, to be uh, being rich is seen as a trap that leads to temptation elsewhere. Many, many warnings in the New Testament. But what Jesus is teaching here is far broader than that. It's not more broader than just money. The treasure described here isn't just talking about what is in your wallet, your disposable income in your bank accounts. It's what you get your satisfaction in your life from. It's what you daydream about, basically. It's what you search for most on the internet. It's the thing that thrills you. That's what Jesus is speaking about here when he mentions the word treasure. And the warning is, that treasure, if it is not heavenly treasure, is going to pass away. Your money, your possessions, it's just going to go. Now you, you will say, oh, well I'm not setting my heart on this massive bank account. I'm not looking for all of that kind of stuff. My, my mind isn't there. For you, maybe something else, might it? Maybe a home. However small, you may have a one bedroom, just you know, in, in, a, in a shared flat, you may have a large house. But is it that that seems to consume your heart and your mind and your internet searches and, and everything else? You're daydreaming, you're thinking about what curtains and what colours and obviously I'm not in this kind of, I, I don't even know the language. But there we go, okay, I can see Shona at the back is sort of laughing at me there going, oh well I know. Is it the cushions? The endless cushions that some people have on their beds, what are they for? But you know, that could be you. Do you want to make it bigger? Certainly bigger than the next door neighbour. It's deadly, isn't it? 
For some, it will be just a family thing. Maybe not having a family. That's the thing that you dream of. That thing, thing that consumes you all the time. But then in having the family, that just can overtake so quickly all your time and energy is placed on them. One quote here, just the most widely accepted form of narcissism in our culture. It's incredible, isn't it? If you treasure your family, the gospel just doesn't go out, does it? You're consumed by them and it becomes a crushing idol. It all happens just uh, so, so easily in a culture where kids are everything. What is your treasure? It could be, like, I don't know, your music collection, your love of music, your playing of music. You know, that can consume, I've got many friends like that. Holidaying, you've just got to visit every, every city in Western Europe. And then I'm going to conquer Eastern Europe. And then I'm going to go further abroad. You know what it's like. The clothes, maybe. The shoes, I don't know. The cars. Just to include everyone, the stamp collections. If that thing is everything to you, that's your treasure, isn't it? And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The warning is, from Jesus here, that thing, if it isn't him, you can't take it with you. You're going to leave it all. So Jesus begins with the negative, but he also mentions the positive. And verse 20, but, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust or vermin here do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now clearly this is not saying, and we've got to be clear, that the Christians will you know, get some reward to gain salvation so that we'll be saved for heaven. We cannot ignore the rest of the Bible. The only way that we can be saved for eternity with God is through Jesus' life, death and resurrection. That is the only way that you and I can know eternal salvation. But what Jesus is saying is that Christians will be positively rewarded for what they do with their lives, with their possessions, with their loves, their hearts, their minds, in response to the salvation that Jesus has brought them. His point is simple. There is treasure in heaven. Now, we don't hear too much about this. There are other references I could point you to. For example, in 1 Timothy 6, 19, it speaks of laying up treasure in heaven. And 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of laying a foundation now that final, on the final day it will be brought to light. There's mentions of treasure in heaven. C.S. Lewis puts it in a brilliant book called The Weight of Glory. I've got a copy at the back if someone wants it. Uh, he, he, he just describes it as the proper reward. Love for God has reward in heaven. Honouring God has reward in heaven. It's the proper reward. Now, you're all asking, and I know because we're intrigued, what is the treasure? Tell me what the treasure is. I need to go and find the treasure. Let's make a film about finding the treasure. I'm excited about the treasure, and so on. I know what I'm like, and I probably you'll like it too. What we do know is that it will be far better than any treasure that we strive for now. Far beyond any of our dreams that we have now. Now, interestingly, the Bible is vague on what the treasure is. Why do you think that is? Because if you or I could quantify or know what that treasure is, we wouldn't ever strain for it. Perhaps we might even look at our lives and go, well, I've got a bit. I've got enough. I'll be all right, thank you very much. I've got enough of that treasure. 
The point is, treasure on earth is temporal, whatever that treasure is. But treasure in heaven is eternal. And that is what we need to store up. A few questions. Just to ask about yourself, and and maybe the the stuff that you try and look for, and you daydream about, and so on. How much difference will your earthly treasures make? How much difference? And therefore, following that, what kind of investments are you making in life now? It's a command here from Jesus, store up from treasures in heaven. Why? Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart here is the centre of who you are. You know that. And therefore Jesus is saying to you and I something like this. Where your treasure is, is is where all of you will be. That's where your everything is. Jesus isn't saying that thinking about your loved ones, your children and, and their futures and your house and having a car. He's not saying that you can't think about those things at all. That would be impractical. That would be silly. They are all good things, blessings, kindnesses from God that we should enjoy and value and steward well. But the question is, what occupies occupies you? Your thought life, your dreams. Perhaps flip it around the other way. This is a really helpful thing I I was reading this week. What do you worry about the most? What do you worry about the most? Because that's probably your treasure. What's the thing that if you were not to have it, if you lost it, that's probably your treasure. What is the thing that you measure other people by? You kind of meet them in the streets or you're, you're at work and there's a new colleague and there you are. What do you do? Where have you been? What kind of place do you live in? Where, where do you holiday? Do you see? How you value someone, that will kind of indicate to you what your treasure is. What is it that if you didn't have it, you know that you wouldn't be happy? A child? A relationship? A certain size of house? Do you see? Do you see what your treasure is? The great thing though is that if your heart is set on heavenly treasures, that's where your heart will be. Also, he says. But the converse, of course, is true. If your heart is set on earthly treasures, that's where your heart will be. Someone that once described this as a very gracious mirror from Jesus. He's holding it up towards you now. And he's saying, look who you are. Do you see? Do you see who you are? Where your treasure is? God is not the spoil sport here. Please don't hear that. He's not saying, well, please don't enjoy life. Don't go out for a, you know, a coffee and a, and a croissant with your child today or with a friend. No, not at all. He's not the spoil sport. Jesus' command is clear. Lay up treasures in heaven. Faithful living, heavenly mindedness that we've been looking at the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount. So first point there, two treasures. Secondly, two eyes. Look at verse 22 to verse 23. The eye here is pictured like a window into which light gets into the body. Now, of course, like any other window, it's not very good examples here, they're all pretty horrible, but, you know, the, the cleaner the eye, 
The quality of the, the window here determines the quality of the light that comes in through the window. If it's clean, lots of light. If it's dirty, very little light. You see the picture? It's a simple picture, isn't it? It's nothing complicated about what Jesus is teaching here. Simply what he's saying is, what comes into our minds, what feeds and moulds our hearts, our lives, who we are, comes through our eyes. The picture is used in the, in the book of Proverbs, of the unhealthy eye in Proverbs 23, and the, the good and generous eye in Proverbs 11. The point is the same here. If your eye is generous, if you allow a lot of light to come in, the whole body will be full of light. If your eye is the stingy eye, your life will be full of darkness. I guess that some of us can say all the right things, turn up at all the right events. You know your Bible as well. You seem so good, but we are fixed on material things. And do you know what? That darkens everything. You may not know that, but it does. And you justify it to yourself, thinking, oh, I have some sort of right to a certain standard of living. Have you seen how they live? Have you seen what they drive? Have you seen what car they, the house they have? You justify it to yourself, saying, well, I've got to have that as well. I can't possibly be happy unless I have X and Y. What is happening in reality, if your eye is fixed on earthly treasure, it will cloud your understanding of everything. Your happiness. You'll always look to the next little gadget or the next thing or the next holiday and think, I'm only going to be happy. I'm only going to be satisfied once I get that. It will cloud your understanding of success. You will think that you haven't succeeded unless you get that promotion or that job, that contract. It clouds your understanding of the worth of others. You'll look down on those who have less. And perilously, the biggest danger is you'll look up to those who have more. And think of only. It will cloud your understanding of your life as well. You'll set goals for yourself. And probably by proxy to your children as well. That will prioritise the same treasure that you are looking for. Earthly treasure perhaps. You will always want more for them in unhelpful ways. It will cloud your understanding, basically, of everything. Your present, your future, God's will for you, the Bible itself, it will all become dark. You'll end up walking around with this tragic sense of dissatisfaction. Nothing will be able to satisfy you. I told this story a, a little while back, but I think it applies. Um, it was, I was just sitting in a coffee shop, and I heard this lady, she was berating her builder on a phone. And there she was, chatting away to him, and it was... It was basically, I could, from what I could glean from the conversation, it was, it was simply that he hadn't quite got the tone of whatever magnolia right in her bathroom. It didn't quite fit with the tiles that she'd imported from Italy, some marble things. And she was getting quite annoyed. She'd had three tones of magnolia, or close to that, and it just wasn't working. She'd made the choices, but she was going at him terribly. The interesting thing, I guess the most tragic thing, was that the three women, three women surrounding her totally legitimised her dissatisfaction. They just said, yeah, you're absolutely right. You should be shouting it down the phone at him. What a silly builder. 
for not doing exactly what he had done what she'd, she'd asked. But she was so dissatisfied with everything, consumed with getting the perfect bathroom. No one ever dared to say some, something sensible like, stop being so picky, get a life, or anything you know, sensible, constructive like that. Why? I guess because the three women around her shared the same darkness in their lives. Similarly dissatisfied. You see, you, we have a choice here. The eye picture is, is one of choice. You, you have two eyes. You, you can have healthy eyes that see heavenly treasure and love it and chase for it. Healthy eyes view the world with thankfulness and push away greed and envy. But you can have unhealthy eyes. And they'll see earthly treasure and they'll chase it and they'll obsess over it and become dissatisfied. They will dream up of storing up all these things and never quite getting enough. It's a very dark existence, one where you'll deceive yourself daily. You'll think that getting that thing that you've always wanted will make it all right. But it never quite does. What you've done is made a good thing an ultimate thing. And you simply stand back and you watch it, that thing get crushed under a weight of expectation that it was never designed and created to bear. There is light for a moment as you enjoy the lovely holiday that you dreamed of or the, the holiday home or whatever it may be. But then the darkness just comes back. Then you have to begin the search again for, for find some more. Uh, a better model, an upgrade, the new, the younger, the fitter, the slimmer. You get the picture. The endless search. The warning is how great is that darkness. Let's go to that last verse, verse uh, 24. There are two masters. No one can serve two masters, it simply says. You cannot serve both God and money. And let's be um, clear about this. Money is amoral here. It isn't inherently good or inherently bad. The question about money, the questions all about money in the Bible are not aimed at money itself. It's what goes on in your heart and in your mind, which Jesus teaches about. The amount of money you have in your bank account is not the issue here. You could be a millionaire or you could be unemployed on benefits. Someone on benefits could be miserly and covetous. A banker could be generous and warm-hearted. And interestingly, all too often it's the people who have least money who love it most, who treasure it most. But the love of money is the root of all evil, Paul says to Timothy. And this is the point. What Jesus is saying here, there isn't a middle ground. There is not a fence for you or I to sit on. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either prefer one over the other, and the question is that Jesus is essentially forcing, if you're sat on this proverbial fence, he's going to boot you off. You've got to work out which one it is. Both demand everything. Material things, earthly treasure, it demands our affections and our energy, just as God does. But God, who has offered salvation through Jesus Christ, says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. And if you think you can find yourself sort of balancing between these two masters, either God or money, Jesus is saying, don't deceive yourself here. Don't deceive yourself. 
You just can't do it. Which is why so many faithful and godly Christians have decided, if they've, if they've got wealth, to give as much away as they possibly can. Sacrificially giving away. John Wesley, very famously, is believed to have given away 90% of his income by the end of his working life. I have a friend who I meet with regularly. He's kind of an accountability guy. We, we pray together. Uh, we, kind of, we share our lives uh, with each other. He is incredibly wealthy. And it's interesting, uh, it is his biggest concern for his faith. He doesn't, I, I, I honestly, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe me when I say, I had a wag of mummers with him recently, and um, there we were, over our whatever it was, noodles and katsu curry, I love that, it's amazing. The guy was nearly in tears. He just doesn't know what to do. It's so hard, the responsibility. But he's aiming to give away more and more every year. Because he knows how difficult it is. We've agreed on a challenge that the percentage should always go up. Now my percentage has to be lower because I don't earn as much and I'm, I'm okay with that. But why do we do that? I think we do it simply. I'm not being prescriptive here. I just do it because... So we can tell who our master is. When things get tough, the question I have to always ask myself, which is the first to go? Is it, is it God or the, that earthly treasure which you sort of cling to and daydream about? Now, I, I think we've kind of gone through the passage. And what I'm about to do, I normally do at the beginning. But what I'm going to do is, is try and see why this is here. It's interesting, it's a, it's, a, it's a passage which you may have known and uh, seen a number of times before. I've certainly taught on it here uh, a few years back. But you see how it fits into what Jesus has been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He begins, doesn't he? Look, look back at chapter 5, of those, those beautiful heart attitudes, the beat attitudes there. They should exemplify what a Christian ought to be. We're not perfect, but we ought to be, as it says, poor in spirit. That is humble, recognising God's greatness. What does he say? Theirs will be the kingdom of God. You see that? Christians ought to be, just go down a few verses, they ought to be pure in heart in verse 8. Not sitting on the fence, not trying to serve the two masters. Christians are those that go on to verse 8 and 12. They're, they're to be rejoicing and, and to be glad, not because of the earthly treasure they have, but because they've known kingdom treasure, the reward of heaven. Oh, we go on to chapter 6, and we've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks that the Christian is the one who, who prays, putting God centre stage, seeking his will, honouring his name. That's the Christian. That's the kingdom of God kind of person. Are we clear? I think Jesus is being crystal clear here. He's saying if you're, if you're part of the kingdom of God, you, you cannot, you cannot serve two masters. You can either serve God or that earthly treasure. Which one are you devoted to? I wonder about your wallet. Think about your disposable income. What's that devoted to? Is it God or is it that earthly treasure? Let's pray as we close. Lord God and Heavenly Father, there probably is not a subject which is closer to us 
That's hard for us to hear. It's something we just don't like to talk about at all. In fact, many of us will happily talk about our our relationships, our struggles in, in many areas of life, but our wealth, our desires for treasure, earthly treasure, is something that many of us will keep so close to our hearts. But we we long to serve you, we long to honour you, and therefore help us to be honest with ourselves, perhaps even honest with others as well. That's what church is about. We're, we're not a community which is going to point the finger and, 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 and elicit guilt, but we want to be a community where we know the grace of the Lord Jesus. We know that we have the chance to repent and change. We long to store up treasure in heaven. We long that that the Lord Jesus Christ is our, our greatest treasure, our greatest security, that our heart is fixed on him and him alone. We long to serve God. And therefore, if any of us need to do battle uh, with our own hearts and our own minds, and to, and to be honest, perhaps, with ourselves before you and with others, Lord, we long to be those who are devoted wholly to you. Kingdom of God, people, who trust solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we know that blessing. I pray. Amen.